from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. My guest today is Dr. Tracy Marcella Addy, the Associate Dean of Teaching and Learning and the Director of the Center for the Integration of Teaching, Learning, and Scholarship at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. She is a scholar of both teaching and learning and educational development, primarily focusing on learner-centered practices, including active learning and inclusive teaching. Dr. Addy is the co-author of the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, Principles and Practices for Excellence in College Teaching. Dr. Tracy Addy, welcome to the CoLab. Thank you, it's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you, and it's really exciting because we are just finishing up reading your book in our Guilt-Free Book Club, along with the Colleges of the Fenway. Let's start by talking about your book. So what does inclusive instruction mean to you, and what made you personally interested in this particular topic? Have you had personal experiences where you felt excluded that maybe motivated you to write this, or what was it that caused you to be like, inclusive instruction is something we need to be talking about right now? I think that's a really good question, and I think it has multiple answers and facets to it. So first, we wrote the book primarily because we didn't see something quite like it in the press and the literature, where we kind of wanted that guide of what does this thing called inclusive teaching look like, right? And all of the various dimensions of what it could look like. So it's the guide that we always wanted, you know, for inclusive teaching. and. Why was I also motivated to kind of pursue it further? Well, I'm really interested in different practices in the classroom in general that focus on our learners and how to improve the learning environment. And I would say that I know from my own personal experience in teaching and also working with uh, educators, it's so critical to have an environment that's inclusive, right? In, in a course and how hard it is when it's not. And I've definitely had a number of personal experiences of being excluded in the classroom setting or witnessing behaviors that were ex exclusive and kind of being like, wow, like if that was a little bit different, this could have been a whole different situation for that particular student or student students or that particular instructor and it would change the dynamic of the class and could also have heavy impacts on the direction of the students and whether or not they achieved in the class, they persisted, they enjoyed the class, all of that. I think it's tied into a need that we saw uh, in our field as well as a need that I think is just critical personally in terms of thinking about how do we teach and how do we do it effectively in the classroom. That's great. And, you know, of course, these big questions of equity and bias are so difficult to unpack, but everybody, obviously, I think, would want to be inclusive. Who would go into education being like, I only want certain students to succeed? I, I haven't met anybody who's told me they, they want to exclude their students from, you know, certain students from learning the material. So what are some common pitfalls that even well-intentioned faculty members might succumb to unwittingly to unintentionally make their courses not as inclusive as they could be. 
That's a helpful way to start. Uh, we actually did a study where we looked at why instructors are not inclusive in their teaching. And it was really interesting to look at some of the themes that came out or emerged from this particular study. And one of the things that you've mentioned here is that many instructors may not go in being like, oh, I want to be exclusive. But one of the things that came out related to that is just not being aware. So this lack of awareness of the critical nature of inclusion and in practices that they're doing can be harmful or for the, the learning environment. That's a really big one. And then also just like not knowing what do we mean by inclusive teaching? Like what, what does that look like? A number of instructors, I would say, have questioned that because it's such a broad term and being equitable and inclusive is very context dependent. It can look like many different things in a lot of different situations. So one of the big areas I would say for a pitfall is just not really taking time to know who your students are in the classroom and what they bring the diversity assets that they bring to the class you know we have this thing you sometimes teach the way you were taught uh and it's unfortunate because we do have to teach from our perspectives right because that's what our experience and what we have but we also have to broaden that knowledge of who our learners are and they're not always going to be like we were when we were in the classroom setting so i think one of the big things is just acknowledging that students are coming in with a variety of different experiences, backgrounds, attitudes, you know, other characteristics that were going to impact the learning environment and that we have to acknowledge that as best as we can in, in the actual classroom. So I think that's one. And just not kind of being aware is another in general of like what is inclusive and what is not. So sometimes some instructors will do certain practices and they'll realize, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was unintentionally excluding students in doing that. Maybe it is how I'm calling on students or how I've created groups or, and I didn't realize that it, it may come up in feedback or it may not. So also that awareness, I think, is also really critical. And just being able to know or kind of anticipate, these are the types of things that I know could be really important for building a more inclusive environment. Another is just a fear. I am just afraid of this. I don't know, I don't wanna make a mistake. And so I always say that we're supposed to be just like our students learning. And so we will sometimes make mistakes. It's very likely, and that's how we learn. That's how we grow. And so just doing the best that they can to educate themselves in, things, in terms of inclusive teaching practices, I think is really important, but also being kind to yourself. Um, if you're really trying, most students see that you're trying. You apologize that you made a mistake. Most students completely understand if it's done in an authentic, genuine way. Those are a few of the kind of bigger pitfalls that I you know, see around inclusive teaching and just being able to effectively implement it in the classroom. That makes so much sense, especially the part about teachers being human. And when we're authentically human with one another, we can forgive a lot of things, kind of mm -hmm. see past some things that might just be a blunder and, and understand where people are coming from and, and let that go and kind of reestablish that connection, feeling of belonging. So in your book, you discuss the key dispositions that inclusive instructors have. And the back cover of your book states that it unfolds as an informal journey that allows the reader to see into other teachers' practices. So as an educational developer, you've had the opportunity to see into many faculty's teaching practices from across the disciplines. So what key takeaways have you learned through your observations? What are some crucial things that truly impactful teachers uh, share? 
I really enjoy the opportunity to be able to work with instructors on inclusive teaching and their efforts. And as you've noted, being able to work with faculty across the disciplines has been great. We run an academy specific for inclusive instructors, and we also engage students as partners. So we also have students that engage in this observation of teaching and feedback. So we've gotten a lot of really interesting kind of observations and things that our professors have been doing in their classes around inclusive teaching that I think is very valuable. But I think one of the biggest takeaways when I look at all of the instructors is that, especially the ones that complete the academy and the ones that are really engaging in inclusive teaching practices is just their desire to do better for students and learning. So they are wanting to learn how to do better. They're open-minded. They're willing to figure out what their pitfalls are and trying to learn that from their students, trying to learn that from the literature, from various places and sources so that they can just be a more effective instructor. And so I would say that learner-centered mindset is huge for the instructors that I see in engaging in inclusive teaching. So they truly have shown that they believe they can do it. There's things that they can do that it's possible and that there's different things that they can change in their classrooms that that can actually get to that. And so this idea of like, they're always growing, they're learning uh, and they're learning all new techniques and whatnot. And they're getting that feedback from their students that this is working. So that's been really big and just a, an appreciation of the diversity of their students. So seeing again, diversity is an asset, you know, the ones that are the most successful at this program and doing engaging in inclusive teaching are those that do see student diversity can be a really good thing in that it's important to invest in the diversity of the students in their class and to think about how they're teaching according to and being responsive to that diversity in the class. They definitely see it in a different light. They're kind of bought into this idea, which is really critical, that inclusion is critical in the classroom. So you mentioned the importance of having a learner-centered mentality. So what does a student-centered classroom look like as opposed to an instructor-centered classroom? Essentially, in that type of classroom, it's really designed to support learning rather than purely the focus being on the instructor as just transmitting information to the students. So a student-centered classroom can look so many different ways. And one of the fun things that we've been doing is we have a protocol for inclusive teaching we've been using in the classroom and you can actually see the different inclusive teaching behaviors that are student-centered that instructors are doing in so many different profiles based on the different classes because it can look so different but essentially in those classrooms uh, students are really actively learning so there's active learning going on in a variety of different ways so you'll definitely see that it's not purely didactic You'll see in a learner-centered classroom, most of the students are engaged in participating. So you're not going to see just a couple of students that are really engaging in the exercises, but there's more equity right amongst the students in terms of participating. And that's really critical for all of our students to be engaged right in the process of learning as well. You'll see the instructor as more serving kind of like as a guide or a facilitator or a coach. Some of, you'll hear some of their language is more focused on that in general to coach them into this process of learning and growth. You hear them contributing more to the conversation uh, where 
it's going. Also, the instructor trying to understand a little bit more about, you know, where students are. Um, you'll see so a lot of engagement that's back and forth around what the students know, what they've learned, etc. So you'll see that kind of constant engagement. And it's kind of like this back and forth collaborative process, right? It's not just purely one sided through the instructor being mostly didactic the whole time and, you know, trying to impart knowledge. That description got me excited too, um, 100%. Mm -hmm. I always see teaching and learning as a two-way street, and I love going into classrooms where active learning is happening, and it just feels alive and vibrant uh, with discourse. And, you know, I think that students leave those classrooms feeling a sense of, of belonging um, to the mm -hmm. discipline, to each other, mm -hmm. to the, the community of, of inquiry. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the importance of students having those feelings of belonging in learning mm -hmm. environments. So it's really critical, and that's what we see, you know, we're focusing more on this, these ideas of belonging, of students feeling as if they matter, and how critical that is to the learning environment. If a student doesn't feel as if they belong, it's tied to so many things. I mean, it's their sense of self-efficacy, their ability to be able to feel like they can do well in that course, their ability to interact with their peers and their professors, and their ability to like just do they want to be there? Do they want to actually engage in this in this experience with the people in this space? we can see the sense of belonging is really critical for and students learning in general and being able to engage fully. So when we design these spaces for students, we really need to design them with them in mind and who's coming into the classroom and ensure that students do feel a sense of belonging. A couple of things that come up also with belonging is some students might be kind of one of the only, right? Like of a particular demographic group or social identity or background. So that can also make them feel as if I don't belong here, right? I don't see people that are like me or know if they are like me. And also we know that diversity is a whole range, right? There's visible, invisible types of diversity. So they not, may not understand or see that. And it's belonging with both in the class because we see that the professor and interactions with the professor can be huge. So when there is some kind of like discord there, that's a problem, but also with their peers. And so being able to have that sense of belonging there is also critical. So we see it going kind of multiple ways in the classroom setting. And it will definitely impact uh, student success. I mean, some students, you know, you can still not feel a sense of belonging and seat in a class if we call that success, right? Do well, get good grades, et cetera. These, you know, standards that we have and criteria, but they, they still will probably feel like a, a big lack. And especially with the discipline, depending on the course itself. So we know that that's all very critical in the learning environment. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah, that's such a good point about belonging being essential and critical. And I was reflecting on what you were saying earlier about how faculty tend to just come in and teach the way they were taught, because how else would you know to do something differently? And you have the incredible perspective of going into tons of different classrooms, but maybe an individual faculty member doesn't. You see a lot of different ways that things could be done and ways that faculty could interact with students and welcome them in. So I guess I'd love to ask you about what you've observed about the kind of limiting beliefs that you see faculty having that kind of hold them back from creating classroom cultures in which students can thrive. And maybe an example of a faculty member that you worked with who were able to open their eyes in some way to a new way of interacting with students, being more inclusive and actually produce better results for, for student success? 
Yeah, so one of limiting belief, I would say, is a little bit of vulnerability. Now, I will also just say that that's not going to work the same for every faculty member. Not all faculty members from all social identities, backgrounds, demographics will want to be vulnerable about particular things. But one of the things that I definitely have seen is that some they want to put up a hard exterior and this tough kind of <laughs> kind of mindset of I'm the professor and you're the student. Typically, it doesn't go so well most of the time because there's already always a power dynamic right in the classroom where the instructor has the power. They give them grades, etc. Right. And so when we make it even further to the extreme, that is even more pro kind of problematic. So I would say that's one type of limiting belief, the idea that you can't be slightly vulnerable and more authentic and show yourself to your students and who you are as a person. And that actually is really helpful. Many of our students like say like, you know, I really want to know that you have a dog or whatever it is about you. you I want to know you. And we talked a little bit earlier about your humanity, the humanity of the professor. And so some are so reticent to, to share those aspects of themselves. But I think that can also be a challenge for implementing an inclusive environment and kind of overcoming that as well to try to think about our students and their common humanity. Some of the other things I would say sometimes there's disciplinary things, for example, kind of some STEM disciplines, and it's not throughout, it's just like some things that we kind of can see sometimes is that they think, you know, the field is so objective and neutral. We don't focus on humanity. When we're thinking about inclusion, we can't do that in our classes. So those types of beliefs are really problematic too, because we know that inclusive teaching takes on so many different forms from very simple things, simple things you can say or do in the classroom that make a huge difference. It doesn't have to be basically changing your whole curriculum. So that is also more inclusive. So I'd say those are a few examples that kind of can be really challenging and it's really hard to change people's beliefs and we have to go through a huge process in order to do that. And we have to kind of negotiate what we are already believing and basically adopt something new that's foreign to what we believe and have to be convinced that this is the right kind of way to think about this. Most of the time, what I see is that sometimes it's really hard to get to that point, but there can be sometimes different things that some instructors can do or experience that can help them move forward in terms of implementing more inclusive teaching that might persuade them or convince them. Sometimes it's seeing a colleague do it in a different in some other way. Because you talked about, you know, actually seeing different practices, because sometimes it's not an awareness. Sometimes it could be a student sharing something with them that they're like, oh, I didn't realize that in my teaching. So sometimes there are these revelation moments that can happen right with instructors around inclusion. And they're like, oh, wow, I need to really change the way I think about that. And that can actually shift them towards that. And then the other thing, like I mentioned earlier was mistakes. Sometimes we will make mistakes and it is our responsibility to do this in some form or fashion. It goes both ways for inclusion. So we have to also grapple with those types of beliefs that we have, even our own insecurities, which we might have. And I love that you've done so much thinking about beliefs and how we change our beliefs. It's really the core, the essence of learning is <laughs> expanding your worldview and seeing the world in new ways. Is there anything that you used to believe that you no longer believe about education based on not only your experience, but also what you've learned from the scholarship on teaching and learning? 
I feel like I've definitely transformed in a lot of my ways of thinking. I would say I did a lot of active learning. And even though I feel like I'm somebody that probably you didn't have to convince that this was good, <laughs> right? Because I already knew it. And also the way I learn, I would say that one of the things that maybe I, I grew further in my beliefs is this idea that an active learning environment can be really good when well-designed for students and for their learning. That's great. And it's really neat to look back and see how you've changed, grown, developed based mm -hmm. on all of these different experiences. And so I'd love to hear a bit more about your family of educators and your longstanding interest in this. And also for our podcast listeners, they may not know that you're an African-American woman. And I was curious as to how that identity has influenced your perspective on the need for inclusive pedagogical practices. Both of my parents were teachers in K-12 systems. So my father, special education in a inner city school district. And so I heard growing up uh, and I experienced a lot of unique kind of thinking about uh, teaching and learning in a lot of unique ways, because it was a perspective of a teacher as my parents. They had a lot of different experiences in the classroom and in different types of settings. One of the things that I think is really powerful is that my family, and their experiences through them made me recognize just the disparities that exist within education and in the iniquities, especially across school systems and across different environments and how one school system having a lot of resources and support and another not and communities where students are facing different challenges than other students that really affect the, the learning environment there. Also, my father being a black male teacher, which is really rare, it's especially in K-12 education, that was pretty neat and powerful. So I think that also in some ways shaped my thinking around teaching and learning and with regards to the diversity and, and inclusion issues and equity issues that we face and where students also come from high school into college and how they're coming from all these different backgrounds. In fact, when I first started, I think my dissertation, one of the things that I really, really, really was adamant about is that I really wanted to bridge this gap between K-12 and college. Um, my experiences with my family also made me kind of think about that, I think, that bridging those two as well. And then also my own experiences in teaching the same, kind of seeing that kind of play out in, in the actual classroom itself. And yes, as an African-American woman, um, and early on, I did most of my work in STEM. I'm definitely somebody who's considered probably the most marginalized Black and a woman in a field that really craves and needs more di diversity. That also, I would say, has implicated also my thinking around thoughts like inclusion and, and inclusive teaching, as well as my family. Thank you for sharing all of that. So we talked a lot about active learning, and that's huge. And one active learning strategy I know you're really interested in are case studies. So can you tell mm. us a little bit more about the way you've seen case studies used across a variety of disciplines, particularly maybe in STEM, because I know that's that's an area of focus for both you and for Wentworth, and how you've seen them used as a teaching strategy to get students involved in deep inquiry and active meaning making. Yeah, case study is is a great approach. I mean, there's so many different types of approaches, but you, I, I can see that you looked at my background and that I, I published case studies sometimes periodically. I've been writing a lot of different things recently, but case studies have been kind of uh, the go-to when I'm writing like an educational lesson, things of that nature. And I used to use them a lot in my, in my classes as well. So for case studies, 
the power of a case is the power of a story. And so we know that people learn through stories. And that's why some people who are great storytellers can be really awesome teachers, right? In a way too, because you can really have a powerful classroom environment and you know that students will remember that story. Not only are we talking about applying the information, so thinking blooms, right? We're going further, uh, deeper in terms of learning. We're gonna have better memory and thinking of it, that it is a story. We can wrap in the content right the uh, that we really want to in a, in a solid way the students can consolidate that in a concrete way as well and then it also provides opportunities i think as well especially all across the you know various disciplines but even in stem as you noted to have students work collaboratively to actually solve problems and to think about these ideas of you know problem solving and to come up and create their own ideas or new knowledge um, and construct that in a meaningful way I love this and I love the focus on stories as something so powerful that really stick with us that we can connect to and understand the relevance of the material in the real world context and also that sense of a mystery and discovery and unfolding that can happen. So you mentioned just the importance of stories. So I was wondering if you have any particular anecdotes that come to mind from your work with faculty or with students that's just like a transformational one. You saw somebody have one of those light bulb moments or one of those instances where they just were like, wow, I, I'm going to change what I'm doing from here on in because of this thing that we experienced together. It's usually when it's pretty extensive experience that you can see this change. But one of the ones that just comes to mind first actually didn't happen where I'm currently at, but it happened when I was in an institute, so helping to facilitate a summer institute on teaching and learning. And I will say that that particular uh, time, there was an individual a participant there who seemed pretty much like skeptical. They're like, oh, I don't know, I don't need to learn how to teach. Also, this person was somebody who had an experience in teaching. They weren't new to teaching. And during the course of that particular institute over those five days, and that institute, that person, you could actually see them over time just engage more and more and really get it. Like the some of the things that we were talking about, this more research support evidence-based teaching, and they were just like, wow. And then by the end of the Institute, it felt like there was like a transformation, you know, like you're talking about this idea of transformation, that the person who started was not the same as the person who ended. They really took heart to a lot of the different teaching practices and reflecting on their own and had a very different air about them. Like it wasn't very skeptical, but they were like, wow, like this is really a good thing. Sometimes it doesn't develop instantly. Sometimes those things take time overall, but that one was purely one that I could actually track it and see it like over the course of the five days. That's really exciting to see. Let's talk about some straightforward interventions that you recommend that faculty try with their students. So in your book, you talk about a who is in class form that instructors mm -hmm. can give out at the beginning of the semester and then make modifications to their teaching based on who they know is in the room. So how does that work in practice? And what kinds of changes have you seen faculty members make in response to having more in-depth knowledge about their students? So the who's in class form basically is um, something that we designed, we co-created with students, faculty as well. 
and people have used it and modified it in different contexts. It's used in so many different ways now. Basically, uh, it's a survey and it asks a number of questions that students are welcome to answer that shares aspects of their social identities, their feelings about learning, their feelings about an inclusive environment that really can help the instructor get to know students more and understand who's in the class. Essentially, the instructor does it very early in a course and then when I've seen this form used, our instructors have had a wide variety of revelations. So some have seen that, oh my goodness, my students, they work more than I anticipated. They have really busy lives like outside of my class. So that's sometimes been a really interesting revelation for some. Some of them have found that the, the, just the obligations of students, they've led to them changing policies in their class. For example, policies around when things are due or kind of more flexibility and things like that, but still having, you know, some kind of deadlines and things like that for the class, but just a little bit more embedded flexibility, acknowledging the humanity of their students as well. I remember one example, uh, one instructor had two sections of the same course. One of the sections was they said they were very quiet, like a lot of students said they were quiet students. And the other one was like the opposite. And it was two sections of the same course. You can kind of see it was really interesting because they, they had totally different dynamics in the course. So then we actually brainstorm different ways in which we think about engagement and participation, right? Like there's many forms of participation. We don't have to characterize it as one, as in, you know, raising your hand and talking in class. So they think about things like that in their group work and those types of things. We've seen a lot of different changes like that. Some of them, like if they see a lot of first gen students, some of our instructors are first gen, they'll also share that. They'll share resources of the whole class around those that are on campus, if there are different resources on campus. So a lot of those kind of changes that are small, they're not intended to basically revise your whole course. It's just tweaking slightly at the beginning of the course to adjust, to know, like focus on this idea of diversity as an asset and the humanity of the students. Sounds like it's been really impactful and in a way where it's like lots of little things that add up to a big change in terms of the students feeling a little more included, a little more sense of belonging, a little more seen and heard in the classrooms. So that's wonderful. And I know that you have a variety of other resources in addition to this Who's in Class form available online for folks who want to explore more, go, go more deeply into this. So tell us about any other resources you might point faculty to in order to help them be more inclusive instructors. Sure. Well, one of the ones that is up now is the Inclusive Teaching Visualization Project. So instructors can actually look at videos of examples of teaching practices that are inclusive. It's a good way to reflect on teaching, to kind of think about what are some of the teaching practices that are inclusive and to actually just visualize them, to actually see what they look like. Now, one of the things that I've talked about too is our protocol that we've developed for inclusive teaching. And that particular protocol, it is used by observers in classrooms and instructors can get basically a data-driven chart of like different inclusive teaching behaviors that they're using in the class. So they can use that for their goals around inclusion to really think about like baseline, what am I doing? Or if they're trying to move towards certain more inclusive teaching practices, they can kind of do that a couple times, have it be observed a couple times, and then basically see if there's change. So that can be really neat to reflect on teaching. Uh, so that's another resource that's forthcoming uh, that I think will be really uh, useful for instructors. And we've been using it in one in our academies for the last few years. That's really exciting. 
So you and I both work at Centers for Teaching and Learning on college campuses in the U.S., and we're part of the POD network. So let's, let's just talk a little bit about that. So as the, as the director for, uh, of a Center for Teaching and Learning, how do you see your role on campus, and how do you affect change and take leadership in a space where we don't necessarily have power, we have influence? And, and how what, what have you seen to be effective in influencing faculty members to apply these best practices that you've studied you know, in their classrooms? And particularly at a time like this, when I've seen faculty feeling very overwhelmed and overworked, how do you engage them in meaningful professional growth? I really enjoy my role in the Center for Teaching and Learning because we can really support instruction at the school at large. And I think that can be quite powerful. And just the ability to support instructors who directly impact our students is just wonderful. And to know that that's the contribution that we're making. So where do I see my role? Well, in my campus, I also serve on different committees. So I serve on committees like faculty committees around teaching and learning policy. So that really helps think about the impact of the center and the work that we can do. I've served on some committees that also looked at various criteria for teaching and learning as well. So that's also really helpful. So the center can focus on like good practices of teaching, et cetera. But then I can go a step further in some of these other roles and really look at bigger teaching questions and policy change. So I think that actually makes it even more effective on campus as well. I also see myself in the center and my team in the center as just being a spot where we can really think about collaborating. We talked about networks a bit, but about being a structure on campus that partners with many other campus you know, kind of stakeholders or partners to think about bigger picture questions of teaching and learning. So one of the things I've really strived to do in our center is to partner like with the libraries, with academic resources, with advising. The other thing that I think can really help is also the way that as Centers for Teaching and Learning, we work with individual faculty, yes, but also in departments. So if we really wanna see and think about change and support departmental level change, there's a lot we can do to serve as a resource to departments and whatnot. So one of the things I also do on my campus is I, I do my role, attend the department heads and program chairs meetings. So when there's bigger questions or issues around teaching and learning, I will bring them up there as well, you know, with our heads and our, our chairs, and then we'll try to see what we can do and explore them together. So being able to ask the departments, can you just give us a sense and summarize some of the things that you are doing around this? And then that helps us kind of know what are types of things that we can do to support you. So I see in the center as a place where we are really responsive to the needs of our community. So we're seeing what our community is doing. We're also understanding what's happening in teaching and learning larger. We are addressing the issues that come like COVID, like all these different things, trauma, you know, the times right now, racial unrest, social unrest, all of the things going on. And that I think we are these wonderful spaces on campus that actually can be able to grapple with those with our faculty. So I think that that is a really important role and a valuable role for Centers for Teaching and Learning, that we can actually take on these bigger questions in collaboration with others on campus as well. And so that's also to see myself. So I see the policy, I see the good practices, I see seeking out the community to figure out what's best for the community, and then just to working at various levels to help with the change and systemic change too at the institution.
That's wonderful. It sounds like you've really been able to integrate some of the scholarship you've been doing on teaching and learning into practice at your university through all these collaborations with a variety Mm -hmm. of stakeholders across campus. So it's a great uh, inspiring example that we'll bring to our university. And of course, hopefully our listeners will be able to do as well. So while we're talking about faculty development, can you tell us about any lessons you've learned in facilitating professional development activities for university faculty? What's worked really well and what hasn't as much that you no longer do? I would definitely say one of the things that has worked pretty well is faculty hearing other faculty or having a space to share their teaching practices so that it's not like purely from the center. The center is also an expert. I mean, they, you know, they see us as experts in teaching and learning, but what a lot of faculty really want is that expertise, but they also want it in a way that's manageable and understandable and digestible. And that's spoken in, in a way that they really truly grasp. And so when they hear other colleagues, other faculty share their teaching practices, what they're doing in the classroom, what they're facing, and having a forum for that, that has been probably one of the most, I think, successful types of activities that we can do for faculty. Now, we can also just expose to ideas and things like that, and we do that all the time, but I think those discussions are really critical and really important. So having that space, I think, has been really helpful for faculty. The other thing that I've seen also be very effective is actually to have targeted programming and and development for different groups of faculty. So there's certain things that everybody, yes, can definitely benefit from, but also having spaces for different faculty has also been critical. So many centers will have specific programming for new faculty. They'll have specific program for visiting and adjunct faculty or for mid-career faculty or faculty that have been teaching for a while or full professors. So I think that that also is also really useful. And then another thing for faculty development is also getting people's opinion, getting our faculty's opinion about what they need. So when we do a session, we always tend to ask in like our registration forms, like, what do you want to most know? And so if we can address that head on, that's what they're there for. (laughs) Um, So that's a really important piece of faculty development that we are also responsive to like the needs of our faculty. Like even when we design a session that we really are trying to think about what they need the most. Other things in faculty development, having faculty observe each other, like teaching squares or open classrooms, those kinds of programs have always been really successful, as well as encouraging faculty to be parts of learning communities. So we have learning communities, you know, specific to specific groups of faculty that also has been successful. So they can talk about their specific needs. And it's just like, you know, I think about like in our, in the classroom where students come in with all the variety of differences they have. And we also have to create spaces, you know, there's a joint combined space, it's our classroom, but also, you know, if you think about when the students go outside of the class, like there's all these different activities they might do or engage in different groups co-curricular wise. And so how do we create these kind of things, acknowledging the diversity of our faculty? So we have these global things, but then we also think about what other specific needs and specific groups. So I think those have been really helpful as well as always being open-minded. So we're not a punitive kind of space, right? We're not going to come and say, oh, you're like, you know, you're off what you're teaching or blah, blah. Like, that's not our job. Our job is to listen. It's to think about ours as a partnership 
like what can you do in the classroom? We're not just a center just for if you're not doing well in the classroom, right? We're for everybody and we're really thinking about like faculty on all levels and as a support structure. So I think really helping faculty understand and know that that's what we're there for and build that trust, right? They need to trust us to go to their class to really be um, vulnerable about teaching because not everybody, you know, feels comfortable with that. So I think in faculty development work, that's huge. And to build, build that trust is, is, a, is a big, big deal. Because <laughs> once you break it, it's like getting it back is, is going to be quite hard. And it's so interesting, the parallels between what you're describing and the teacher-student relationship. It's just human relationships. <laughs> um, and the need for that support and trust is, is huge. So thank you for all these great suggestions. And as we start to wrap up our conversation, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone. Please tell me about the role that curiosity has played in your life. I would say I'm a super curious person. <laughs> so I've always been, I, ever since I was a child, like I was the child that would follow my parents around to like see what they're doing because I wanted to learn what they were doing. And I'm still kind of like that as an adult. <laughs> like, I'm like, I want to learn how to do this. I want to know how to do this. You know, not everybody wants to do that. I remember actually my mother was saying that, Tracy, I remember when you were little, you used to always follow me around and you used to always like watch me do all these things. And I'm like, yeah, because I always wanted to learn from from you like I always wanted to learn so I think I'm naturally a, just a curious person how do things work I want to also maybe be competent at like being able to do certain things so I'm like teach me how to do it because I want to do it myself I want to try it so I think it's played a huge role in my life and I think it's a really good thing also when we can inspire that with our students I think as well right that curiosity of whatever they're learning in the classroom and making them more curious and inspiring that kind of spark. I think that's that's really powerful. And so I would say, yeah, it's curiosity, is, it continues to play a role and it has been ever since I was young. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that rich answer. And one more question is just what else should I have asked you? Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I just want to say thank you, first off, for, for um, inviting me and having this conversation. The only other thing I would say is we are thinking about, we have a contract for our second book. So in 2024, we aim for that to come out. So if you're enjoying the first one, this next one, I think you'll also enjoy very much. So just keep an eye out uh, for for the second book in the next uh, couple of years. So that's one thing I would just love to share since you do have a a book group going as well. We have more to say, more to share around inclusive teaching. That's wonderful. Do you have a working title? The, the title, the first part of the title is going to be Advancing Inclusive Teaching. And the second part is probably something with students' perspectives. So this particular book will really get into the, the students' perspectives in ways that the other book, you know, didn't because the other book had a different goal and, and how it was crafted. That's great. Well, that's so exciting to hear how well this first book has been received and that it's leading to this subsequent project, which is just going to build upon this critical work you're doing to make college education more inclusive. Thank you. We're, we're, we're excited. We're enjoying it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. Thank you as well. And, you know, again, this is wonderful that you have this podcast. So thank you for inviting me again.
Dr. Tracy Addy is the co-author of What Inclusive Instructors Do, Principles and Practices for Excellence in College Teaching. And I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. And as always, stay curious. Mm-hmm.